Welcome to the Climate Justice Central podcast. For centuries, workers have been sidelined when it came to sharing the wealth that they largely produced. With the end of the Second World War, the Global North saw its workers having a fair share of the riches they usually produced for others. This added more pressure on nature's resources and contributed significantly to the changing climate. The imperial mode of living. Welcome to the Yaja podcast on the imperial mode of living with Alexandre Namposa and myself, Ongengluka. Today we have our guest, Marcus Vissen, a professor from the social sciences at the Berlin School of Economics and Law. He specializes in socioeconomic transformation and has written a book with his colleague Ulrich Brandt titled The Imperial Mode of Living, Everyday Life and the Ecological Crisis of Capitalism. Welcome, Marcus. Many thanks for the invitation and for the introduction. Welcome again, Marcus. Please explain to our audience what an imperial mode of living is. The imperial mode of living for us is a concept with which we try to explain the stability of certain socially and ecologically destructive patterns of production and consumption in times of a severe crisis, of an aggravating crisis. So our argument would be that these modes of, um, that these patterns of production and consumption are deeply rooted in everyday practices and in the um, social um, relations um, of production and they can be deeply rooted because their socio-ecological costs are transferred, are transferred, are shifted, are externalized to the global south but also to future generations and therefore they are rendered invisible to a certain extent and this contributes to stabilizing these these patterns, these destructive patterns of production and consumption even in times of a crisis. I think we see this inequalities, and this inequalities are a very dri- uh, driving force of the imperial mode of living. In simple terms, what Professor Vissen means is that the way in which the global north has produced their wealth and the way in which they carry out their wealth through their lifestyles has been destructive to the environment. He mentions in his explanation a transfer of costs to the global south. Translated into a language that you and I speak, Professor Vissen is saying that the lifestyles of the global north are having a severe impact on the global south in terms of environmental impact as well as on future generations. He further goes on to mention that because the effects on the environment are intangible in the case of, say, carbon emissions, these patterns and imperial modes of living have been allowed to continue without much apprehension. That is, though, until now. Can you expand a little bit on what you mean when you say that inequality is driving the imperial mode of living? Mm -hmm. We would say that the imperial mode of living is strongly connected with the class structure of capitalist societies. They simply can't do so because they have to be part of the system because they are socialized in capitalist societies in a subaltern way. So this is why the... um, imperial mode of living is strongly connected with the class structure and thus rests on social inequality. Okay, and please expand simply on what the relationship between workers and the climate issue. This is, <laughs> of course, a complicated question. Yeah? So on the one hand, one could argue that the class contradiction between capital and labor 
has been processed or has been domesticated in a certain form in the global north at the expense of the environment and of um, exploiting resources and labor power in the global south. So workers um, have um, also benefited from the capitalist system. So if you want so uh, workers um, who um, originally were in a more fundamental opposition against the capitalist system finally agreed on being integrated in the system in a subaltern way but under the condition that they were able to participate in the wealth increases that the system also enabled here. This is the fourth class compromise in the global north, if you want so. A class compromise that was concluded on, not willingly, but actually at the expense of future generations, at the expense of the global south. Yeah. So one could say that workers through being involved into this class compromise also benefited or contributed to modes of production and consumption that drove climate change. But of course, on the other hand, this is not a willing compromise, this is not a conscious compromise. It is something that is the result of, of, of struggles, of social struggles for the participation for better living conditions. Furthermore, one must say that um, one can observe even the global that even the, that even in the global north the social inequality has been increasing uh, more recently. And social inequality is a driver of climate change, and social inequality mediates climate change. We can see, and this is statistically proven, that workers or other subaltern people have a much smaller ecological footprint than, for example, the rich and the capitalists. So although um, workers are involved in the imperial mode of living, they are not involved because of a voluntary decision, but as a not intended result of class struggle. And furthermore, in their consumption patterns, they have a much more and um, lower responsibility. Absolutely, and I think I just want to follow up a little bit on that. Do you think that workers are actually open to giving up the standard of living to achieve certain climate goals? I would say, of course, it, it depends, you know, because they depends on the branches. Also in Germany, we have a low-wage sector where we people simply cannot live from less, where there is an urgent necessity to increase the wages in order to secure a certain standard of living. But of course, there is also there are branches which are highly unionized, where the unions have fought for good wages, for good working conditions, and, and as a consequence, for a high standard of living of the workers. Yeah. We um, in Rosa Luxemburg Foundation we have a working group on the future of uh, the automotive industry, and this is a working group that is composed by scientists, by environmental activists, by unionists, and people from the working councils of the car industry um, itself.
And this is quite interesting. Of course, these are the progressive, more progressive people from the car industry. But it is quite interesting what ideas they have on how the future of the car industry should look like. Some of them say, we simply do not need more cars. We have too many cars. So we have to think about a different transport system. We have to think about a different transport system. And we have to think about how to use our competences um, in order to contribute to this different transport system. We can produce something else than cars. It's possible. Yeah. Not all of us, I think, um, it's not possible to, to employ all the workers, all the 800,000 workers that are now part of the car industry and the car supplier industry in the same factories if we uh, really attempt to achieve a completely different transport system. But nevertheless, there would be very good jobs in the in creating the infrastructures for a public, sustainable, uh, collective transport system. And many workers know that, and they also are willing to fight for that. I think at the basis of the trade units, there is a much stronger consciousness on the necessity of an ecological change that helps society. a society that does not produce social and ecological costs that are in space and time and that also may contribute to a better living standard of the workers themselves. This was a very interesting experience of the Corona crisis. In the Corona crisis we had the lockdown in Germany and many people um, had to go for, as we call it, short work, that is uh, re reduced uh, working time and also a reduced wage um, that is then also financed um, by the company but also by labor agency, a state agency. And the experience was they were quite happy with this reduced working time, at least in, that was, I do not uh, argue, based on uh, representative empirical research, but this was an experience of, of one car supplier uh, company in the south of Germany. The work research associate of the work council reported that the workers were quite happy because life was less stressful. They enjoyed it. They enjoyed the working time reduction. And I think this is quite an interesting thing because that points to the fact that workers um, do not have to lose from this transformation. They can also gain. Maybe they lose, at least in the branches which are highly unionized and where the jobs and the wages are relatively high. Maybe they lose a bit from their wage, but nevertheless, they will face an increase in, in the quality of life because they have more time. The time wealth will increase and that will compensate for minor wage losses, at least in those industries where the wages aren't really uh, high enough for the subsistence of the people. Yeah. In, in Mozambique, for example, workers do not have an effective union as the government doesn't accept. They are sometimes adapted by workers to demonstrate, but the government intimidates them and ends up staying in silence. How to mobilize Mozambican workers to understand the, the book's arguments? Uh, the other point is that workers are poor and there is an idea that only those who produce a lot can get out of uh, poverty. 
uh, that, for example, your child will only go to school if you work hard, that you will only have bread on the table every day if you work hard. How to mobilize workers in these kinds of contexts? Is it possible? Hmm. Oh, that's... Of course, that is a very difficult question. and I'm not uh, familiar with the specific situation in Mozambique, so it's hard for me to answer that. I think it is, of course, a much more difficult condition when, for example, the possibility to create unions is suppressed by the government, yeah? when there is a lack of social rights, of um, rights to freedom, uh, and um, what to do in such a situation. This is quite difficult. It is dangerous to form the trade unions, and it uh, requires a lot of courage and a lot of engagement and also the the willingness to face a strong repression which is really not easy and it, it, I really admire the people who are who are willing to to do this and to take to accept disadvantages for this engagement I think it is a question of um, perhaps understand this from an international perspective because such a, such a situation perhaps cannot simply be resolved in um, Mozambique alone, but its resolution would resolve international solidarity. Solidarity of the working class, solidarity of workers from other countries that press on the government of um, Mozambique and to really allow the uh, association, the free association, the construction of trade unions, and thereby to improve the possibility to represent workers' interests in Mozambique. Yeah. This is what I would say from a, let's say, German point of view and without having a deeper knowledge on the situation in Mozambique. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to have a few questions about developing countries and just the overall concept of your book in terms of it applying there. You mentioned how during COVID workers work for less time in my country, if that would happen, then workers already struggled to make means come together. And I think that if they worked less, then it would be mm. horrific for them. But obviously, we're most vulnerable to the climate crisis. We need to have some sort of way to say, OK, we need to produce less, we need to extract less, and we need to have less on the market so that consumers demand less or expect less and change their way of life and what to expect from the market. I just wanted to know, in a context like that, is the book a realistic solution or is the book only geared at global northern countries like Germany and, and, and the rest in Europe? Mm. I see this problem. I, th I think this uh, privileged situation from which we argue in Germany, without doubt, a privileged situation because... Social security, in spite of a lot of attempts to attack the welfare state, is still quite high compared to countries in the global south. And I, for, I can imagine that for many people in the global south, working less is a catastrophe because working less means having a, uh, a smaller income and not knowing how to uh, nourish the families or how to uh, survive. Yeah. And so the book is 
internationalist perspective, we think about how um, the situation, how the production and consumption patterns the global north should change in order to create more space, more political space and more opportunities for progressive developments in the global south. The idea or our diagnosis at the moment is that um, the patterns of production and consumption in the global north shrink the space for progressive alternatives in the global south. So if the, if the global north would contribute to a much more fundamental change in production consumption patterns, a reduction of the scope of effects, a reduction of socio-ecological costs that are shifted to other parts of the world, then the space for alternatives would be broadened in countries of the global south. This would be the idea. And of course, there has to be a much more direct involvement and in international solidarity, working together, a common imagination on what is socially useful, what is ecologically sustainable, what shall we produce, what, which kind of needs are legitimate. In the global north, I think and this society is characterized by a lot of needs, of normalized needs, which are not legitimate because they cannot be universalized. It's normal to go by car, but we know that this normality is a horror for many people in other parts of the world. And reducing these effects uh, would mean to create more opportunities for people in the global south. That would be the basic argument. This is not, a, of course, a master plan of a solution, and, but I think it would at least create the space for working on progressive solutions in other parts of the world. Absolutely, and, and I think my follow-up question to that would be, we've seen how the worst polluters and world economic leaders have responded to demands at COP meetings. The previous COP meeting, countries or worst polluters and, and strong economic leaders are kind of refusing to say that Yes, we are the biggest polluters and therefore we're going to take the most impactful steps to reduce that. There's kind of a, a denialism and, and shying away from that responsibility. So how will those countries, especially considering how capitalism is built and, you know, this constant race to being the world economic leader, how will countries encourage their citizens and enforce their citizen like rules rather to have their citizens actually change their, their ways of living in order to reduce the climate impact so that countries in the global south can actually see those that have contributed the most take action and responsibility in what they are most vulnerable to. I do not expect important incentives or the important initiatives coming from the political elites or from the governments and I think it's the other way around. Yeah. They have to be pushed. They have to be really pushed by, so by progressive, progressive social movements. Yeah. More recently, we um, saw a rise of progressive social movements in the global north, for example, Fridays for Future or clim the climate justice movement. And I think even if they are far from reaching, from achieving their goals, they have changed the political climate program like the European Green Deal that is, if you want so, uh, an, a program for a comprehensive ecological modernization of the European economies would not have been thinkable without these movements. The governments, the leaders have been pushed by this movement, by the youth movement, 
the thing about climate change, to put climate change on top of the political agenda. Yeah? So this is the way things can move. We, we nevertheless have to be aware of the limits to achieve real progress within capitalist conditions or under the, under the conditions of a capitalist state. The capitalist state is something um, where progressive forces can reach something, where they can shift borders of what is thinkable and imaginable, but there are also structural constraints that um, have to do with the fact that the capitalist state is not a neutral actor. It is something that can be understood, to quote Nikos Polanzas, as a material condensation of social power relations. Yeah. So the state institutions are always a condensation of social conflicts and the compromises that have been reached in these conflicts. So if we take this into account, then we will have an awareness of the possibilities of acting within a state, but also of the structural limits that are imposed to these progressive actors that try to change something via state policies. We will have to think about strong social movements that on the one hand, of course, push the states and try to enact reforms that contribute to cope with the socio-ecological crisis. But on the other hand, these um, movements have to be aware of the limits and have to think about how to formulate their ideas, how to formulate their demands in a way that it potentially transcends the limits of capitalism and the capitalist states. It's a very complex task, but nevertheless, it is something that can also work here. Yeah. There are a lot of examples for that here, yeah, where people, for example, fight for public utilities. It's could say it's a minor issue, but it's not a minor issue, because public utilities, democratically controlled utilities, would mean to push back the influence of capital, would mean to take back control over basic infrastructures of, so of social life, over infrastructure that enable a good life. Yeah. And therefore, it's not a minor issue. Therefore, it is a kind of way to think an alternative society and to act for an alternative society. This is something that comes from below, and it is not something that has been initiated by the leaders of the capitalist states. My country when you even look at the end of apartheid and that mm. came from the ground and I think since then we've just had such strong social justice movements and with the youth now we're seeing such a strong rise in them organizing themselves and calling for environmental and, and climate justice but I think our leaders are just so resistant well I mean some of them are really open to speaking but I think there's this kind of consensus in the global south that we have more pressing issues things like poverty and, and access to, to basic water and those are, are more important than you know complaining or rather you know demanding climate justice and, and so it becomes difficult and I think we have it's it's been evident with a minister of ours who our publication has now called the call fundamentalist because he's so entrenched in his way of thinking that coal is the only resource we have to actually boost our economy and, and extractivism is so strong in that. So I think you're definitely right in saying that that push has to come from social movements and, and ordinary citizens to get our leaders and governments to shift the needle. But I think at the same time, it, it can be so hard in, in countries like ours where 
there seem to be higher priorities and that link between climate justice and poverty sometimes is just not made mm-hmm. or just not made evident to to the people most vulnerable. I don't know, Alex, if maybe it's a bit similar in your in your country. Yeah, sure. I think that it's really similar to Mozambique. Yeah, and I think that echoes across the southern African region and, and in the continent as well. Um, but I don't know, maybe you can give us some, you know, advice on how to considering that our workers are kind of at the bottom of the socioeconomic scale, if I can say, how they can sort of make that link between climate justice, the, you know, ecological crisis, the work that they do, and kind of demanding that, or maybe highlighting to to their employers that, you know, what we're doing here is is, is dangerous to our ecosystem mm-hmm. and we need to do something about that. I don't know if you have any advice maybe mm. within that context. This is a question that is strongly discussed in the so-called uh, environmental labor studies. That is, a, if you want so, a more recent um, approach that has found its first expression in the Handbook of Environmental Labor Studies that has um, more recently been edited by Nora Rätsel, Dimitris Stevis, David Assel, with a lot of interesting case studies. Yeah. So the uh, one of the ideas here is that basically we can think about two forms or two approaches towards just transition. One of them considers the transition as a problem because the transition means hardship for workers. They will lose their jobs in environmentally um, problematic branches and, and therefore the transition is something that has to be shaped in a way that workers are not affected negatively. The other approach is more offensive, more progressive. It is, is, it is based on the assumption that of course the transition may cause hardships, but that the hardships for workers of, of climate change and an aggravation of the ecological crisis much harder or much bigger than the hardships of a transition, of a consequent transition. So, What Professor Vissen is expressing here so well is that while the transition can be seen as an enemy to job security, the threat of the climate crisis, which is no longer a threat, but a reality, is greater than that of job losses in the long run. It's not to say that people's livelihoods come secondary to anything, but rather that if the transition is not carried out, people are left with an inhabitable environment that will not only diminish job prospects, but diminish their quality of life. So, it's not so much a transition, but the the crisis itself that is the problem, and the current state of the art. Yeah, of course, an, an ecologically destructive um, industries provide for jobs, but often these are unhealthy jobs, jobs that are only that are not only unhealthy for the workers themselves, but also for the communities where these. Um, factories are located because they produce a lot of environmental harm. So striving for a more fundamental just transition that considers the currently the status quo and the aggravation of the crisis as the main 
problem for workers is crucial precondition for, let's say, a more um, fundamental approach and also for involving workers more actively in this process. I think um, the crucial issue is how to um, imagine workers' interest in a way that goes beyond the mere economic interest in keeping jobs. Yeah. I think workers are not simply the owners of jobs. Workers are also people living in communities, being dependent on a healthy environment, on a livable community. And often it is the same company that provides for jobs that destroys the livelihoods and the communities and the environment where the workers live in. As soon as this is taken into account, the economic interests of workers are transformed into more political interests. This requires a close cooperation between unions and, for example, feminist movements, environmental movements. Yeah. Particularly in South Africa, there have been, as far as I know, examples for this. And this is quite interesting. This is also encouraging, even if some of these have failed. Yeah. But this connection between workers, labor, unions, and social movements and um, is is crucial for um, developing common perspective that in short sight um, that in a, in a short term perhaps may um, be against the economic interests of workers but in the long term in the interests of workers in a more healthy environment and livable communities it's difficult but i think this is the perspective in which we have to think yeah and i think you mentioning that there are companies that are providing workers with jobs, but also at the same time destroying their health and that of their community. In we have an area in in my country called Mpumalanga where they produce the electricity, and the community there and, so, and a couple of NGOs have recently come together to say that you're producing deadly air for us, basically, and they've won that that court case against the government because as much as it's become a coal mining town, I mean, it's been so destructive to their health and to the health of their children. And there's another place in the free state called Sasselberg where petrochemicals company Sassel operates. And the people there are just, I mean, they've had jobs for a while from the company, but some of them are just so unhealthy that they can't work there anymore. And it's it's interesting, I think, to see that contrast where it's like people are thinking of their livelihood first and then only their health when it kind of hits them that they are unhealthy and that this company is, is causing that. So I think what you've mentioned there is quite important and something to, to take into consideration. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Professor Vincent, for joining us today. I think you've given us incredible insight into how the... Global North can change their imperial mode of living to actually reduce the impact of the climate crisis in, in the Global South. It's a pleasure to discuss with you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Climate Justice Central podcast. For more engaging stories, go to climatejusticecentral.org.